John Ziegler here, excited to announce that we have our first sponsor of the Individual One podcast. Now, as you'd probably expect, I do not do endorsements unless I actually use the product. And I just started using this one. It's Imbue CBD. If you're a golf fan like I am, and you've probably read about how CBD is all the rage with all sorts of respected people raving about the various positive physical aspects of CBD, especially among people like me who are, let's face it, starting to feel the impact of aging. Recently, I started trying multiple products from Imbue CBD, and I can already tell that, among other things, I am for sure sleeping more soundly. And my wife says she loves the Imbue CBD facial cream, although, to be honest, she doesn't need it. In case you haven't heard, CBD is the powerful extract from the hemp version of cannabis. And while it may offer many of the health benefits of marijuana, there's no high, it's legal, and doesn't require a prescription. The source I trust for CBD is Imbue CBD. This is a top-of-the-line product and classy in every way. Consequently, Imbue CBD is not inexpensive, but I got you a discount to explore all the many ways CBD might be able to help you. Go to ImbueCBD.com and get 25% off when you enter John Z. Again, enter John Z for 25% off at IMBUECBD.com. That's ImbueCBD.com, promo code John Z. This is episode number 84 of the Individual One podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the critically acclaimed program which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald Trump from a conservative perspective, because unfortunately no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. And unlike the corporate media, we here at the Individual One Podcast have most definitely not been compromised or co-opted. Welcome to the program. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. And follow us on Twitter, at Individual One Pod. That's at Individual, the number one pod. I get uh, called a lot of things. Uh, by a lot of people, most of them not particularly flattering. But one of the more consistent things that I am called by people who actually know me is I'm often referred to as a pessimist or a cynic. And when people say that to me, I immediately go, oh, you mean I'm usually right. That's how I interpret pessimism and cynicism. The funny part about me being referred to as a pessimist is that I actually think of myself as a borderline delusional optimist. Because what I generally do in any particular situation is I interpret what the uh, most likely scenario is, which is almost always bad, and, and then I try to find the most hopeful possibility within that bad scenario. And generally, it turns out that I am either dead right or, if anything, I'm slightly on the optimistic side of what ends up transpiring. This is especially the case in anything <laughs> dealing with high-profile uh, cases where the media is out of control or Donald Trump is involved. And and if you're a fan of this podcast, and hopefully you are, and that's why you're listening, you know that especially during this entire impeachment saga, I have called every single step of this uh, fiasco exactly right. I mean, about as close as you can possibly get and far better than anybody else that I'm aware of from the very moment the story broke. In fact, my first column for Mediate, what right after the whistleblower became known publicly, was essentially, uh, yeah, uh, Trump is far more likely to benefit from all this than he is to be removed from office. I, I thought he might be impeached, which he eventually was, Uh, But I knew he would survive, and I thought he actually might prosper because of the nature of the Ukrainian story and his ability to smear his most lethal uh, rival, Joe Biden, for what would be the general election campaign should Biden win the Democratic nomination. And so when we got through most of the impeachment trial and we got to the climactic moment of whether or not there were going to be new witnesses and specifically whether or not John Bolton was going to testify, I told you weeks ago, John Bolton is never going to testify. Now, at the time, I thought it was because John Bolton was playing a game. 
he may still have been playing a game. If he was playing a game, it was a rather complex game, and I'm not sure he won. He may have lost uh, very badly if his goal was to promote his book. That story is yet to be told. But I told you there was no way that John Bolton, who refused to testify voluntarily in the House and made it almost impossible for them to call him, in fact, did make it impossible for them to call him in the House, that he would suddenly offer to testify in the Senate unless he was confident that that would somehow be blocked. It seems to me that that my initial gut reaction was correct, that he never really wanted to testify. He wanted to appear as if he wanted to testify because he has apparently this book coming out, although the administration is doing everything they possibly can to stop that from happening. So it appears to me, and I did right from the beginning, that Bolton was playing a game. And there was another thing that many people missed in all of this. Democrats and the media thought that the more the case was made that a Bolton or maybe a Lev Parnas could bolster the case, make it more clear that Trump was guilty of what he was charged in impeachment, that that, using the logical portion of their brains, that that would actually increase the chances that Republicans would be forced to allow new witnesses and that Bolton and who knows, maybe Parnas, although I actually think Parnas might be a, a more lethal uh, witness under certain circumstances than Bolton would be based upon what we currently know of what they have said. But regardless, there, there was this notion that the stronger the case was made against Trump, that this would increase the chances of new witnesses. Uh-uh. I told you this was exactly the opposite of reality. The reality was the stronger the case against Trump, the more Republicans wanted the hell out of this thing, the more fearful they were of calling a John Bolton because they were concerned that the revelations might be really, really damaging. So this was not anything close to a situation where we had good faith actors we had the opposite of good faith actors. Even the Republicans who were pretending to be good faith actors were not good faith actors. The more the case was made against Trump, the less likely they were to provide the opportunity for more witnesses, more revelations, to drag this out and have the possibility that a larger portion of the American public might actually become engaged in all of this and realize just how corrupt this whole quote-unquote drug deal, as John Bolton has said to have referred to it, really was. They were not going to do that. The great irony, and it's amazing to me how few people, even in the moronic media, have figured this out, is if it looked like Bolton wasn't going to be able to bring that much to the table, they would have called him. They would have allowed for witnesses. If Parnas hadn't come out... <laughs> and been so dramatic and had audio tapes and documentation proving that he was the, the centerpiece of this scam, this scheme, and that Trump had lied his ass off claiming that he never even knew who the heck he was. If all of that had not been true, if all that hadn't happened, Republicans would have been far more likely feeling far safer to actually allow witnesses. Correct. And so... This is so much, so often the case. It's it's amazing to me how often reality is the opposite, almost 180 degrees, to what is being perceived. And so if Republicans had thought, well, you know, hell, let's call Bolton. doesn't sound like he has that much to say, or at least what he's going to say is ambiguous. Then at least... We can claim that we gave Democrats what actually this scenario <laughs> that's for Republicans. The scenario as it now is, now that Republicans uh, cowardly voted against, except for two, Susan Collins and Mitt Romney, voted against new witnesses, and the new witnesses went down 51 to 49 on, on multiple uh, votes. That now that that's happened, Democrats actually have a pretty decent talking point. 
And I've said this previously, that there was a part of the Democratic Party that probably didn't want to win their battle for witnesses. And there was a part of the Republican Party that understands this is not the best scenario for us. Best scenario would have been, you know what? You Democrats are whining and complaining. We're going to give you your damn witnesses. Here's John Bolton and and who who else? I mean, there was other people, Mick Mulvaney, that should have probably been called. I believe Lev Parnas should have been called. We're going to call these people, and it's a big nothing. And we got to be done with this uh, fiasco. This is taking the uh, the time and resources of the American government away from the things that the American people really care about. Blah blah blah. That was what I think Republicans wanted, and frankly, that's probably why a lot of Republicans claim to be on the fence. But it was the opposite side of the fence of what was perceived. They wanted the case to be weak so they could then call witnesses and not be able to be accused of a cover-up. But the case was so incredibly strong, and it became so clear from these news leaks to the New York Times that what John Bolton was going to say was very, very damaging, not just to Trump, but my God, to the entire narrative, including Trump's lead defense attorney. I mean, just before the final vote, it was revealed that John Bolton's book manuscript claims, and again, John Bolton is known as a truth teller, John Kelly, Trump's former chief of staff, who fought with Bolton all the time, says, I believe John Bolton and not the president. Correct. (laughs) Because... Who, who who would ever have worked for Donald Trump and believed him over John Bolton and anything, I don't know, or believed him over anybody on anything, I don't know. But the reality is John Bolton ain't lying, especially when he's putting it in a book. And uh, he claims that this whole scam, this scheme, was hatched earlier than previously known, that Bolton was recruited to be part of it, and that one of the people in the room participating was Pat Cipollone, Trump's lead defense attorney. I'm not making this up. You cannot be serious. And, and, I mean, that alone, that alone in a rational world, they have blown up the impeachment trial. Blown it up. Oh, my God. The, The former national security advisor of the president is writing in a book that much of what we think we know about this whole thing is not true because it started earlier than we thought that he's saying that he was recruited to be part of the drug deal and that the guy leading leading Trump's defense is a material witness in the case and no one cared. It's just flat out ridiculous. No one cared. In fact, people cared so little that during the break to decide how the hell they were going to finally land this plane from a logistical standpoint, Marco Rubio and Mike Lee, two of the good, quote-unquote, Republican senators. Marco Rubio is the guy I supported in the 2016 primary after Scott Walker uh, got out after uh, being the frontrunner for 15 minutes. But Marco Rubio was the guy, once the primary started, that I was supporting because I thought he was the best person to beat Hillary Clinton and would have made a good president. And he, He's young, charismatic, Hispanic, speaks Spanish, you know, likes rap music. I mean, the guy was a perfect Republican for the new generation. And I thought, you know, not a perfect guy, but at least a decent guy. Marco Rubio and Mike Lee from Utah, supposed constitutional conservative, they're on the floor of the Senate, and they're literally joking around with Pat Cipollone and other Trump lawyers. Now, think about how absurd it is that the jurors are joking around with the lawyers for the defense in the courtroom to begin with. That's absurd. But when you consider that just hours before, Cipollone had been cited in this New York Times report as a material witness, a material witness to the whole thing. And he's Trump's lead defense attorney. He should never have been part of the case. He should have been forced to recuse himself. He, which, by the way, also goes to show that if Bolton is telling the truth, and I believe that he is, that much of what Cipollone was saying during the trial 
was a lie. Correct. I, and no one cares. No one cares. It didn't impact one vote. In fact, Lisa Murkowski, the last, last, last hope for there to be new witnesses, senator from Alaska, moderate, somewhat mavericky, she eventually decided to vote no on witnesses almost right after the New York Times report. She delayed her decision slightly and then gave one of the most nonsensical explanations for why she did not support witnesses that I've seen. And, and there were many that were nonsensical. But I, I don't honestly understand what Lisa Murkowski's explanation really was. The, the way I interpret it was, she said, this is not a fair trial. Congress has failed. So therefore, I'm going to cast the last vote to end any chance of there being a fair trial. You cannot be serious. That's what she did. So, so wait a minute. Hold on. You're, you're saying it's not a fair trial, but you're going to cast the very last vote and any chance of it being a fair trial. This is the bizarro world we're now living in. Now, her vote may or may not have been the deciding vote. Most people don't think that it was because even if it had been 50-50, that would have theoretically put it into the hands of John Roberts, and John Roberts was not going to decide that there were going to be witnesses on his own. He would have uh, simply said that the, the motion did not pass because it needed 51 votes, and that would have been the end of that. The real deciding vote, and this is just freaking hilarious to me, was Lamar Alexander. Now, I wrote a column, which you can find at Individual One Pod, mocking the news media, forever buying in to this obviously bogus narrative that Lamar Alexander was going to buck his best friend, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, and as a retiring conservative from freaking Tennessee, was going to be forever known in his retirement as the guy who allowed there to be damaging witnesses against Donald Trump in his impeachment trial. There was no chance that that was ever going to happen. Yet this was the media narrative. We were told, well, he's, he's retiring and he's, he's an institutionalist and he cares about the Senate. And he is a huge fan of Howard Baker, former Tennessee uh, senator, uh, now passed away, who uh, led the charge for Republicans to take down Richard Nixon back in the early 70s. And that somehow he was going to follow in Howard Baker's footsteps and do the same thing. Really? Come on, people. It's just flat out ridiculous. It's absurd. It was always absurd. And I believe it was a scam. I believe it was a contrived gambit by Mitch McConnell, which worked perfectly. And ironically, and this, I do not believe this is anything more than a funny coincidence, but my column was entitled, Mitch McConnell played the media like a fiddle on the entire uh, witness situation, specifically with regard to Lamar Alexander. Last night on Saturday Night Live, the opening sketch was about the trial. And when they brought Mitch McConnell in, the description under Mitch McConnell actually said, played America like a fiddle. Hmm. Hmm. I, I think that's probably coincidental, but it was interesting nonetheless. And you can check out the column I wrote at Individual One Pod because it, I think it's important because it shows a lot of how we got into this mess and why we can't get out. Because the media is just such a bunch of freaking morons. They really are. Idiots! Imbeciles! Uh, the idea that, that Lamar Alexander was going to be the deciding vote was always preposterous, but it served a very good purpose for Mitch McConnell because it made it appear as if his caucus was seriously considering all of this. And we, uh, we, we have somebody who is respected and he's going to be the final arbiter over whether or not witnesses are warranted. And then, of course, once Alexander makes his decision, which was a surprise to nobody with a brain, that was the moment that the trial was officially over. Well, that's bogus. And so was Lamar Alexander's explanation. His explanation was, well, the case was already proven. We, the case against Trump was already proven. 
But what he did was, quote-unquote, inappropriate. It just wasn't impeachable. Now, uh, this is fascinating. So you're telling me that you were convinced that the the defense proved their case against Donald Trump, again, beyond a reasonable doubt. He's guilty of what he has charged, but that abuse of power and obstruction of Congress are not impeachable offenses. They do not rise to the level of impeaching a president. And then he gave some convoluted baloney about how... Uh, this is, you know, an election year and we shouldn't give the death penalty, the death penalty, the death penalty, capital punishment. We shouldn't give this is not capital punishment. If Trump were to somehow be convicted, not only does he not get capital punishment, does he not get killed? He's not be put to death. He doesn't even get put in prison. He loses his job. A job which is a privilege. It is not the divine right of kings. Unless, of course, we're living in a monarchy. And that's the argument that many of the Republicans are being forced to make now in order to justify this bullcrap, rationalized position that Trump didn't do anything that was impeachable. Okay, well, if that's the case, then you believe in a monarchy. You believe in a king. And, And the idea that somehow... Uh, this is capital punishment, uh, which is a, a, a term that I've used, I've heard used many times by Republicans, is is just absurd. It, 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 the The job is a privilege. It is not even the overturning of an election, which I guess is a form of the capital punishment. I mean, there's the most absurd claim is capital punishment. Uh, no, it, not even close. Uh, Well, it's overturning an election. No, no, no. You see, when we vote, it's weird because we don't just vote for a president. We also vote for a vice president. You know why we do that? For exactly these circumstances. Exactly these circumstances. This is why we have a vice presidential vote. One, if they die. Two, if they disqualify themselves from the office. This isn't that freaking difficult. And, and yet, I guess they just presume that uh, their fans are just so f- dumb that they won't figure this out or won't care. I love the poorly educated. It's, it is absurd. Every single argument is absurd. And some, I love this, there, there are some conservatives who have uh, sanctimoniously tried to claim that there are real, significant, philosophical arguments uh, and precedent-setting concerns that are that justify being against this partisan impeachment. Bullshit. Total bullshit. I, I, th- this is hilarious to me. Th- and this argument goes something along the lines of, well, the House didn't do this right. It was a rush job. Um, I have been very critical of the House for picking this topic. I have never felt that the Ukrainian scheme, as bad as it was, was conducive to an impeachment because, for among other reasons, the American people cannot even point to where Ukraine is on a map uh, and because there was actually no actual harm done that we could touch, see, feel because the deal actually eventually went through because he got caught in the middle of the drug deal. So there were numerous elements of this story that I felt like did not have the legs to warrant uh, impeachment if you were trying to do it successfully. I never believed he was going to be removed from office, but successfully meaning that a huge majority of the American people believed that, that it, he was guilty, that it was an impeachable offense, and that it, it diminished his standing in the public's eye heading into the 2020 election. I've never believed that the Ukrainian story fit that bill, and I think I'm being vindicated in that view by how this is all currently turning out. However, even though I've been critical of the House on that point, they didn't do anything wrong with regard to process here. Yeah, it was quick, and yeah, it was based in timing. I'm not naive. They wanted to impeach him before the end of last year. They wanted to get this thing done uh, as soon as they could before we got hot and heavy into the election season. I get all that. But this notion that uh, specifically, well, 
Bolton should have been called in the house. Uh, and therefore, uh, he, it's illegitimate to ask for him to be called in the Senate. That's absurd. It's absurd on for two reasons. Number one, and this is important and, and, and has not been made enough. Number one, they had no idea what Bolton was going to say back then. They had no idea. They had an inkling. They did not have a manuscript of a book that's about to be public, which they do now. So, and then part of this is Bolton's fault. I'm not taking Bolton off the hook at all. But the House, all they knew was Bolton appeared to have some relevant information but he did not want to testify. So he put up this logistical legal roadblock, which would have been impossible to get through in any kind of uh, uh, timely fashion. And we also didn't know what he was going to say. Well, by the time the trial comes around, and, and by the way, this is just like a grand jury and they indict, and then there's a trial. If in a, in a real criminal case, if that happens, and a witness suddenly comes forward with direct testimony, a direct witness involved at the heart of the case, comes forward with documentation, his notes, and he's a credible witness, and says, hey, I have this to say, and I'm willing to say it. I'm sorry, that's brand new. And you can't hold the House accountable for, or the grand jury accountable when that didn't exist then. And, and, this, and the second part of this, which I've already alluded to, is the idea that the White House, that the Trump people, get to benefit from their own obstruction is insane. It's just flat out ridiculous. Because that's what happened here. In the House, they obstructed in every possible way. And yet they still whine and moan about, we didn't get to have any of our witnesses. We weren't even allowed to come to some of the hearings. Totally bullshit. Total bullshit. But more importantly, when you put up the roadblocks to allowing the House to do a, a, a full and thorough uh, impeachment investigation, you cannot then complain once it gets to the trial. Oh, oh, we can't have new witnesses. Oh, the House screwed up. This is all the House's fault. It was a procedural error. No, that's a rationalization by people who are desperate to find a way to support Trump. People like Jonathan Turley, uh, alleged and uh, academic expert on the Constitution, who all he really wants is a lifetime of uh, guest spots on Fox News Channel. And he's going to get it. That's what he's going to get out of the deal. So people like him, desperate to try to come up with some rationalization for why this impeachment was illegitimate. And that's really what all the Republican senators were doing. And they all came up with different explanations. Lamar Alexander, it's inappropriate but not impeachable. Lisa Murkowski, it's not a fair trial, so I'm going to ensure it's not a fair trial. Marco Rubio, this is my favorite. Marco Rubio, I can't believe I supported this guy in 2016. Marco Rubio said, uh, yeah, it's impeachable, but it's not like impeachable in the way that it's worth it to actually remove uh, somebody from office. What? What? You cannot be serious. If this is not worth removing somebody from office, when they uh, have made it very clear that they are willing to engage with a foreign power in a quid pro quo using the leverage of our own military aid for an ally fighting against Russian aggression. And by the way, of all the elements of this impeachment, and even I have done a lousy job of this, and I think it's because we're all subconsciously now frightened of the Russian investigation because it turned out you know, to be uh, so such a joke at the end, not because of what was found. I believe that Mueller found a whole bunch of amazing stuff that should have brought down any other uh, president, but because Mueller's testimony itself was so bad and, and so ridiculed, including on this show, that, that somehow anything doing to dealing with Russia, we are now afraid to bring it up. But it's, a, it's astonishing that given that this happened the day after, the phone call happened the day after Robert Mueller's horrible testimony, the day after that happens, that's amazing in itself. But who benefited from this? Who benefited?
when Ukraine isn't getting their military aid, it's Russia that benefited. Yet, no, hardly anyone ever brings that up. Hardly anyone ever brings up that element of this. Because we're afraid of it. Because in the minds of many people, the Russia investigation was discredited. But it was not. If you actually read the Mueller report, it, it was the opposite. But Bill Barr did an amazing job of muting it and discrediting it and lying about it. And the media got afraid. And then Mueller did an incredibly lousy job uh, of testifying. But they're, they're, if, getting back to the, the point here... The larger point, which is with regard to impeachment and whether or not this is a removable act, if you're willing and able to do that in a scheme that was way more than one phone call. Oh, my God. It drives me crazy when people say, oh, it was just one phone call. It was a bad phone call, which the president still claims to be perfect. No, it was not. This thing went on for months and months at many levels. And that's why I find the Lev Parnas testimony, potential testimony to be way more uh, damning, way more interesting, uh, and just shows what just an utter farce this entire administration is. I mean, how is this guy running a shadow diplomacy for the United States of America? It, it, it's The whole thing is astonishing. It, it's, it's, a, it's run like the mob. And, and Parnas was the muscle. He was the fixer, all run by Rudy Giuliani. Who, who does not have an official position in the administration. He's the president's personal attorney. So if this isn't worth impeachment, if this isn't worth removing somebody from office, then, then I don't know what is, philosophically. And more importantly, how are we not creating a monarchy? All this has paved a clear path to monarchy which, of course, is something Trump is very happy about. Correct. Because he's always wanted to be a king. That's why he has such admiration for tyrants in other countries. That's why he admires people with ultimate power, even if they're really bad dudes, even if they're murderers like Vladimir Putin. This is why he kisses up to North Korea and, and gets played every single time. But this is where we're now headed. This is We were supposed to be, we have been for hundreds of years, beacon of hope and freedom and democracy. We are turning into a monarchy. Alan Dershowitz. It's just astonishing to me that Alan Dershowitz of O.J. Simpson, among other cases, fame. And the guy became famous because I don't even remember why. I mean, TV liked him. And, uh, and, you know, he's, he's, he's defended many, many very, 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 very guilty people, including O.J. Simpson. He's tied up in the Jeffrey Epstein uh, scandal, and, and yet he's on the team, and he makes the argument on the floor of the Senate that because Trump was acting in what he thought was the public interest, that that means it cannot be impeachable. You cannot be serious! Really? So let's follow this. Now, he's tried to walk some of this back, but this is clearly what he, he said and what he intended. That because Trump at least thought part of what he was doing with Ukraine was in the national interest because he was somehow fighting corruption, even though that, that's a completely bogus argument. There's no evidence of actual corruption on Joe Biden's part. There's no even actual corruption on Hunter Biden's part unless taking a cushy job uh, is inherently corrupt. I mean, you have to do something in order for that to be corrupt. corrupt otherwise, you're just lucky. Uh, but that's another story for another day. But there's no evidence he had any interest in this story because of corruption. This guy's never been against corruption. He His whole life is about corruption. He loves corruption. This is a guy who had a fraudulent university. He had to pay a $25 million fine because he had a fraudulent university in his name. This is a guy whose charitable foundation got shut down because it was so corrupt while he was president of the United States. This is not a guy who's against corruption. So it's, it's bogus to even claim that he had something in the national interest. But because Dershowitz can laughably claim that there was something in the national interest here, 
that therefore it makes it okay. Well, my God, uh, talk about opening up a Pandora's box. Talk about uh, blowing a, a, a loophole uh, through our Constitution that you can drive a Mack truck through. Th- that now creates a situation where a president is impervious to impeachment, impervious to any form of accountability, and he or she is a monarch. They are a king or a queen, which is exactly the opposite of what this country was founded on. And it is, it would be laughable if it was not so serious. It would be hilarious if it was not so sad. It, it, would, it would be worthy of joking about if it was not so damn scary. But that's where we are. And there's a large part of me that does wonder whether or not I was wrong about going forward with impeachment to begin with. Not because it wasn't worthy. I still believe in the historical aspects of this and putting down the marker that Donald Trump was corrupt and that someone stood up and that the House of Representatives put an asterisk on his presidency by impeaching him. But I, I'm now concerned that there's other precedents being set here that might be even more powerful and more dangerous and that maybe, just maybe, it might have been better to just, as Nancy Pelosi seemed to want to do, to just let this go, that maybe Trump isn't good enough for impeachment. I'm, I'm not there yet, but I'm, I'm wondering about that. I will say this, that the way it appears that this is all going to turn out makes the 2020 election even more vital than ever. It is by far, and everyone says this at about every election, but this one time we really mean it. This is the most important election maybe in the history of the country, but clearly in the modern history of the country. And impeachment made it more so because there are now only really two major scenarios. There are variations of these scenarios. But here are the two scenarios. Either Trump loses and is a one-term impeached president, which becomes essentially about as close as you can get without removing him from office, as he should have been, from, from erasing him from the history books, or at least making sure that there's a mark on him that he is seen as an aberration, as a mistake, and that there is long, in the long term, the damage is at least somewhat limited that we will have at least put a historical marker that, no, the, the American people understood they made a mistake in 2016, and we did the best we could to eradicate that mistake, and he was, de- he was impeached, and he was defeated. That's scenario number one. But scenario number two, now, because of impeachment, is even more grave than it was before impeachment. Because now that impeachment is about to fail— and potentially fail very miserably, although so miserably that may actually hurt Republicans in the November election, at least on the Senate side. But if he were to win, if he were to win, which I think is increasingly likely and might even be just over 50% going forward, at least from today, if the election was today, I, I would not be able to bet against Donald Trump winning, even against Joe Biden. If he were to win... Now, you essentially erase impeachment because the American people still voted for him, at least in the Electoral College. He's probably not going to win the popular vote, but at least in the Electoral College, you validate 2016 as not being a fluke. So he's now a two-term president, and effectively you cannot impeach him. And now he's emboldened. And now he does not have to face the voters again. He doesn't even give a flying fuck about the midterm election 2022 because he doesn't care about the Republican Party. He's there till 2024, and there's nothing you can do about it with zero accountability. And who the hell knows what he's going to do? Who the hell knows what this egomaniacal narcissist with no regard for the country, no regard for the Constitution, no regard to our future, is going to do with that kind of ultimate power. And that's scary as shit. That should scare the living daylights out of anyone who reveres what this country was founded on 
and who believes in the concepts of freedom and democracy. But that's, that's where it is right now, folks. Those are the two scenarios. The first one is okay. As a conservative, I'm not going to be happy about it, even if it is Joe Biden. I mean, you know, if somehow it was uh, Joe Biden and his vice president was uh, Amy uh, Klochebar, or how the hell we say her last name, I always butcher it, butcher it the senator from Minnesota, uh, Klobuchar. If, if that's the ticket, which I think it could theoretically be, but that would make too much sense, then, you know, okay, we get through four years, we try to redo this in 2024, and, and maybe, you know, Trump's not going away, that's for sure. That should be very clear. He's still going to be there. He's still going to be running the Republican Party. But at least that's a scenario where there's a glimmer of hope of getting us through this. But if Trump wins, that hope is gone. There's no way to get through this. There, there, there's just no way. It's only how bad the disaster is going to be and how long until that disaster happens. Now, as far as the remainder of the impeachment trial, uh, I, we originally had scheduled this podcast for Saturday because we thought that the vote was going to happen on Friday. It's very interesting to me that the vote has now been rescheduled for Wednesday, which is part of why we did this uh, podcast on Sunday. Now, there's a lot of different ways you can read the tea leaves on that. To me, and I've written about this, you can find the column at our Twitter feed, Individual One Pod, or on our other website, freespeedcasting.com, or just Google me and Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney is the last hope for there to be any semblance of justice in this trial. It's all on his shoulders, which makes me uncomfortable because Mitt Romney, while he has a soul, has at most one testicle. And he only has the one testicle because he's rich and, uh, and he's in Utah, uh, where they don't really love Trump that much, and he just got elected in 2018. So he doesn't have to run for re-election until 2024. So, um, so the reality is Mitt Romney is the only person on the Republican side, who might still vote to convict Trump. And if he did, I believe that would be very significant. I think it would be very significant philosophically from a historical standpoint that the Republican presidential nominee from 2012, the last one before Donald Trump took over the party, voted to convict and remove Trump from office. Now, that would be an act of courage that we've not seen previously from Mitt Romney, he clearly understands that this is significant. It seems to me as if he believes Trump is guilty. He was, he was the guy who said he thought that we were going to have witnesses. And one of the things I want to know, which I doubt we're ever going to find out, is when Mitt Romney said that it's increasingly likely we're going to have witnesses, who lied to him? Who lied to Mitt Romney? Mitt's not dumb. He's not a liar. I don't think he was bluffing. So who lied to him? And one of the problems that I've noticed in my life of many, because this has happened to me, you know, people who are honest themselves are, are pretty easy to dupe, at least the first time, because they always want to believe in the goodness in people. And they think, well, if I said what this person just said to me, it would have meaning. And if I said I'm going to vote, you know, for witnesses, if, if I'm, you know, whether it was, I don't doubt it was Lamar Alexander, but Lisa Murkowski, was, I'm sure, was in this group. Uh, if, if they say to Mitt, yeah, uh, hey, Mitt, yeah, I'm going to vote for witnesses. This is outrageous. We, we, we can't have a sham trial here. I would believe that they were going to stick to their word and not cave under pressure because that's the way I would do it. So somebody lied to Mitt Romney. But getting back to the, his vote and why it's important, and, and what we can tell about it. Th there's part of me, and this is where I, I, mentioned, I started the show by saying I actually believe myself to be a delusional optimist at times. I still believe there's a chance Mitt Romney votes to convict. He has been given some cover by those Republicans who have spoken out. In fact, I think Lamar Alexander's statement gives Mitt Romney cover. Because Lamar Alexander said, yeah, Trump's guilty. He did it. I just don't give a shit. That's essentially what he said. So there are numerous Republicans who have said Trump did this. 
It's just a matter of whether or not you believe it rises to the level of impeachment and removing a president from office. So, in a sense, Romney has cover. By the way, Susan Collins is not going to vote to convict because Susan Collins is running for re-election. And if she votes to convict, not one Trump fan will vote for her. And uh, she might not even, I don't know when the primary is or whether it's possible for her to lose a primary, but she ain't going to win a general election because Trump will <laughs> will tell his people not to show up for her and she will lose because she's already in a very, very uh, heated uh, re-election bid. So she's going to vote uh, you know, cowardly uh, for acquittal, not guilty, what have you. So it's only Mitt Romney. And so there, there, the part of me that thinks you got to hold on to some hope that Romney will allow for history to record that there was one Republican, and he was an important Republican, to vote to convict Trump. The part of me that goes, wait a minute, hold on, this isn't going to happen, is the, the delay till Wednesday. The delay till Wednesday tells me that here's what really happened. I, I don't know this. This is this is my my Ziegler uh, BS detector, which has a pretty good uh, record here. So let's follow the logic here. The people who forced McConnell to delay this vote till Wednesday are apparently Romney, Murkowski, and Collins. All right, because he needed uh, 51 votes uh, to do whatever scheduling they were going to do. Now, the reason why they moved it to Wednesday is obviously because the State of the Union is on Tuesday. And the Super Bowl is today. And I've already mentioned that uh, Trump wanted this over by the Super Bowl so that he could have his victory lap with Sean Hannity in the Super Bowl interview, the pregame show. By the way, we have exclusive audio of the Trump Hannity interview for the Super Bowl, which I'm going to provide to you right now. Here it is. Exclusive Trump Hannity interview on the Super Bowl. There it is. Exclusive right here on the Individual One podcast. That's the uh, Trump Hannity Super Bowl interview. So, uh, So we have this situation where the vote has been moved to Wednesday. Now, what does that tell me? That tells me that was a concession that McConnell made. McConnell made that concession because, this is my interpretation, because Mitt Romney wanted, and others maybe, wanted to prevent Trump from making a complete ass of himself at the State of the Union address. That, that was the concession that Mitt Romney got. No, 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 no. We're not going to let the president used the State of the Union address to take a victory lap on impeachment. No, I'm not going to let that happen. And if he does take a victory lap at the State of the Union address, I might still vote to convict him. That's what I believe Mitt Romney told Mitch McConnell. So I believe what will happen is that McConnell told Trump, look, if you want to be acquitted with no Republican votes, we have to delay this. And Trump signed off, mainly because he had no choice. And McConnell's probably also going to say, uh, Mr. President, uh, tone it down at the State of the Union address. Now, in a rational world, it should be pointed out, Trump should be apologizing. At the very, very least, he should be apologizing for forcing the country to go through this and for having done this and to admitting that he did something wrong and that he's not going to do it again. But that's not even close to the way Trump works. Correct. That's what should happen. But my gut tells me that if Trump does not make a complete ass out of himself at the State of the Union address, Romney will wimp out and Romney will vote not to convict and the final vote will be, just as I predicted a few days ago, 53-47, not guilty. And Donald Trump will have absolutely no accountability with not one member of the Republican Party, unless you count Justin Amash, who's now an independent, ever voting at any stage of this entire impeachment process against Donald Trump in favor of his impeachment. And that's just freaking pathetic. It's just sad. Now, I'm going to hold out. I'm going to hold out hope. The Mitch, the, the Mitch, no, I'm not going to hold out any hope for Mitch McConnell, I can assure you that, uh, having known him. And by the way, I told you all along, don't play chess against Mitch McConnell. I, I know it personally. I played 
chess. I didn't realize I was playing chess against them, but I played chess against them many years ago in Louisville, Kentucky, and I lost big time. Do not play chess against Mitch McConnell. And that's partially why I believe he's going to get all 53 votes. He just needed to move this vote to Wednesday to get all 53 votes. But I'm going to hold out a slimmer of hope until I hear Mitt Romney say, I'm going to vote not to convict. And I'm sure if he does, it's going to be just an utterly pathetic and sad explanation for why. Uh, Until I hear that, I'm going to hold out some hope that maybe, just maybe, there's a semblance of justice in this entire fiasco. But I'm not particularly optimistic about it. I'm going to say at this point, I'm 60-40 that he'll vote not guilty. And that, and that 40 is that delusional optimist in me that just refuses to die. That, that, that's, that's where that's coming from. Now, in a moment, we'll have a few closing thoughts on this episode of the podcast regarding the Iowa caucuses coming up on Monday. But first, here's an important interview I did with Tom Bauer, the founder of our sponsor, Imbue CBD. Tom, thanks so much for joining us and for your sponsorship of the program. Please uh, tell our listeners a little bit about your company, Imbue Botanicals. Sure, John. Imbue Botanicals produces really the most extensive line of premium clinical-grade full-spectrum CBD products, including tinctures, capsules, topical lotions and salves, and even award-winning beauty products. They're available in multiple strengths for both people as well as pets. Our premium Colorado-grown hemp products are non-GMO, cruelty-free, and even vegan. Now, a lot of people might not be that familiar yet with CBD. It's getting a lot of publicity. But for those who aren't, what is CBD and why do you guys think it's so important? CBD is short for cannabidiol. It's one of the 115 or so cannabinoids that are found in the cannabis plant. It's generally accepted as the cannabinoid or, or the element, basically, that provides the health benefits for cannabis. But science has shown really that CBD works best when combined with all the other cannabinoids and the natural terpenes that are found naturally in the plant, which is why our products are full spectrum, meaning they offer a full cadre of the, all the cannabinoids and terpenes for maximum effectiveness. Now, Tom, you mentioned that Imbue uses hemp. Tell our audience, if you will, the difference between hemp and marijuana, and why your product is not the latter. Great, John. It's really important to understand this. You know, we're all familiar with medical marijuana. Our products are, are not made from marijuana. They're actually made from hemp. Basically, hemp and marijuana are both the cannabis sativa plant. The difference is that hemp contains extremely low levels of THC, which is the cannabinoid that makes you high when you ingest or smoke marijuana. By law, hemp must contain 0.3% or less of THC by dry weight. So, so low, basically, that you can't get high from the product. So, in essence, basically, with hemp, you get all the health benefits of medical marijuana without the high or the psychoactive effect of THC. I should also add here that Congress last year passed the 2018 Farm Bill, which essentially legalized hemp federally and descheduled all the non-THC cannabinoids. So, Essentially, it's, it's, uh, it's legal, which obviously people want to know. Is, you know, can, can I buy it? Can I use it? It's legal. Now, when, when I use it, it's really helped my sleeping. I've only just started using uh, some of your products. But tell us, uh, what are some of the benefits that our listeners might find if they, if they use Imbue Botanical products? Really great question, John. We're actually not allowed to make claims about CBD or products per the FDA. Just an aside, if your listeners come across sites out there that are making health claims, we should always just avoid them. Just You don't want to deal with, with folks like that. It's, it's not legal to do that. But that doesn't mean that there aren't health benefits to CBD. We at MU Botanicals always encourage our customers to do their own research. There is a ton of information and studies available on the Internet. You want to talk to your physician, your independent pharmacist, even your veterinarian. You know, become informed. We've seen some absolutely amazing things personally and with our customers. Obviously, you know, the onus, if you will, is on each individual to to go out there and, and do the kind of research to see if it may be a fit for the kind of things that they're experiencing. Also, you know, check out our website, which has a ton of additional information as well. And that website is? It's www.imbuecbd.com. That's www.imbuecbd.com. Now, you mentioned the FDA, and just before we taped this interview, there was a news story where the FDA put out a warning and sent letters to, I think, 15 different CBD companies. Yours was not one of them. It was perceived as the FDA basically, I don't know, seemed to be like, backing away a little bit from CBD. What was your interpretation of what the FDA did and, and how should our listeners interpret it? That's an extremely good question as well, John. And I think first and foremost, 
is what the FDA is doing, especially when they're sending out letters to companies that they send letters out to, is doing their job. Their job is to really protect the American public from, you know, basically, you know, drugs that shouldn't be there, that aren't doing what they're supposed to do, that can cause harm, and also making sure that companies are doing what they're supposed to do. In in the case of these letters, these companies were making health claims simply because of how FDA operates and and the way that, uh, you know, CBD, which is basically a kind of a a brand new uh, thing for FDA, they're not allowed to make. You know, I'm glad that they're doing that. You know, we never make claims uh, at Imbue Botanicals. That's something that, that is, again, is, is goes back to the customer to do a lot of their own research on. They also came out with some basic overviews and essentially said you should really know what you're doing before you take CBD. It's not necessarily something you should be taking in water and in food products. You should basically get the kind of information that you need and talk to your healthcare team, your physician, your pharmacist, your, your veterinarian, to make sure that there's a medical professional, you know, kind of assisting in the process. Now, in my experience, having used the product and seen the packaging and everything, you guys are totally first class, but first class comes with some expense. You guys are a little bit more expensive than your competitors. Tell us, tell us why you bring more value. We are more expensive than some folks, and certainly not more expensive than others, but uh, but we're, we are a higher-priced product, and the reason for that is, is where we grow, how we extract, how we formulate our products. We do that for maximum effectiveness. And, you know, what our folks tell us, and whether they're the pharmacies that we sell to or the customers that use our product or patients who use our product every day, they tell us that the product works and works better than things that uh, other products that they bought. It's more expensive to do it correctly, but ultimately that's obviously what customers want. If you're going to spend the money, they want something that works, and that's what our products do. So, Tom, if our listeners want to buy your products and, or learn more about them, where should they go? Go to our website. It's www.imbuecbd. That's www.imbuecbd.com. Imbuecbd.com. Tom, thanks so much for your time and your sponsorship. John, thank you. Thanks for what you're doing. Appreciate it. So this upcoming week is going to be... <laughs> One of the busiest news weeks I can ever remember. I mean, we've got uh, today the Super Bowl, uh, Monday the Iowa caucuses, Tuesday the State of the Union address, and Wednesday the final vote to acquit uh, Donald Trump in his impeachment trial. Now, that that's a hell of a week. And the Iowa caucuses are a fascinating event that um, I have really changed my mind about uh, over the years as a political junkie since i was a little kid i used to love the iowa caucuses i mean the idea of uh iowans in the middle of winter getting together in in homes and firehouses and schools and other places uh to express their opinions on who should be the nominee for the democratic or republican party and they have a little debate and then they stand up and say who they're in favor of and then they have a second vote depending on uh how many candidates make the 15 percent threshold and it's all it just seems so romantic and and wonderful and now i believe now that i'm an adult and i'm getting on in years and have been around i'm far more cynical about it the iowa caucus is a freaking joke and uh, this particular Iowa caucus is, is very dangerous because what's now happened is we're now living in an age of cults. Trump has a cult, and that's really why he's going to be able to defeat impeachment is because he has a cult, and he's cultivated that cult for this exact purpose. Uh, but Bernie Sanders also has a cult, and a caucus is perfect for a cult because you're asking people to do a lot, and, of course, cult members will do anything. They won't even ask questions. And so in any sort of situation where a cult is advantaged, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders is going to be the likely winner and uh, you're creating a dangerous situation, especially after what we witnessed on the Republican side in 2016. So the entire process is very much to the advantage of Bernie Sanders. Now, I'm not 100 percent sure he's going to win. If he does win, I don't know by how much he's going to win. I think he's the likely victor, and it will probably be by a few points. I'm hoping not more than four or five points, but it'll probably be somewhere in that range. One of the most bizarre things I've ever seen happen in polling occurred yesterday, and that is that the famous Des Moines Register poll, which is every four years the most 
anticipated poll uh, for the Iowa caucus. I mean, this is what they do. This is what they look forward to. These people look forward to this for four years. They're one moment in the sun. The Des Moines Register schedules to dramatically announce last night on CNN the results of their final poll going into Monday's Iowa caucus. And what happens? They're not allowed to announce it. They decide to scrap the poll. They scrap the entire poll. Why? My understanding, and this is mind-blowing, is that because one respondent to the poll claimed, and I don't even know what evidence they had of this. They, they may or may not have had any evidence. But one respondent claimed that they were not asked, or they were not told the name Pete Buttigieg when asked for their presidential preference. And so because they could not confirm how many of the poll respondents were not given the name Pete Buttigieg, they scrapped the entire poll. I mean, it just seems completely... It's just flat out ridiculous. To me, I, I, I don't get it. I mean, you know, you, you, they should put out the results and they could say, hey, uh, it is possible that some, how, some way, some of our questioners forgot to name Pete Buttigieg. You could say that, and then we can interpret the results for ourselves. But they decided to scrap their one moment in time every four years completely because of one complaint, which I just find insane. But here, here are the key questions for the Iowa caucuses. There, it's basically down to five people. You've got Sanders and Biden. You've got Buttigieg and Warren and Klobuchar. The key question, I think, other than what does Sanders win, that's the first question. Is Sanders going to win? And if so, is it dominant or is it just by a few points? If, if Sanders wins by just a few points, I don't think it's that big of a deal. But I think one of the more significant things is, does Klobuchar beat Warren? I think there's an increasing chance that Klobuchar beats Elizabeth Warren. And if Klobuchar beats Warren... Warren is done. It is over for Elizabeth Warren. She, there, is, there is no shot for her because with Bernie coming out of Iowa likely winning, there's a darn good chance he wins New Hampshire, which is in her backyard. And she actually does very poorly in New Hampshire polls considering she's a Massachusetts senator. But if she loses to Klobuchar, a fellow female who's, who's from Minnesota, senator, and frankly would do a heck of a lot better in a, in a general election against Trump uh, than she would. If she loses to Klobuchar, it is over for Elizabeth Warren. Now, I don't want Warren to be the nominee, so that's good. But that's also actually bad if the, pur- the, the purpose here is to beat Trump. Because if Warren is then forced out after New Hampshire, and I think she would be under this scenario, if Klobuchar beats her in Iowa... And unless she pulls off a miracle in New Hampshire, she's toast. It's over. She's getting out. When she gets out, her people are likely to go to Sanders. And not all of them because they had that rift recently. But if that's the case, then that puts Sanders in a much better position going into the following primaries in in a caucus in Nevada and South Carolina primary and then all the, the big Super Tuesday states. That makes Sanders, I think, more dangerous. I've always felt that Joe Biden wanted Elizabeth Warren hanging around there. And the fact that if Klobuchar beats Warren, uh, that is good news in the short run, but bad news in the long run because I think it opens up a path for Bernie Sanders. So that's what you really ought to look for. Does Klobuchar beat Warren? Does Biden finish in the top three and within a few points of the winner, which I think he will? Uh, and, and just for the record, my prediction is going to be Sanders, Buttigieg, Biden. And then I think it's going to be a toss-up between Klobuchar and Warren for that uh, fourth-place position. That's how I see the Iowa caucus is going down. But I think they're all going to be within a dozen points. I think there'll be a dozen points between those uh, five candidates, and then they go into New Hampshire the following week. I am getting very nervous about how uh, impeachment is helping Donald Trump, although it might be temporary in these polls. I do think Trump fans are more likely to respond when they're very angry and feel that he's under attack, and that's why his approval ratings are up a little bit and why he's doing better in the general election, even against Joe Biden. 
than he has been doing uh, almost uh, for a very, very long time, especially against Biden. Uh, so I'm, I'm not pa- totally panicked. Uh, this could be temporary. But right now, the polls are actually looking pretty decent for Donald Trump in a general election, even against Joe Biden. And I am of the belief that a Bernie Sanders uh, would lose to Donald Trump. And I'm even more concerned that a Bernie Sanders that feels like he got robbed of the nomination a second time is not going to help defeat Donald Trump. And then that's going to cause a rift in the Democratic Party, which will play right into Donald Trump's hands. So there's a lot of things that I'm concerned about uh, going forward. I'm, as I said at the top of the show, I tend to be a pessimist, uh, but I'm also usually right. And right now, um, I got to say, while there's a long, long way to go, uh, things are moving in Trump's direction. And I I don't like it, uh, but I call it like I see it. So uh, with that said, here are the updated numbers that we finish each episode of the Individual One podcast with. We're going to put the chances of Trump not finishing his first term in office at now just 2%. And for the first time, I believe, in the history of the, uh, the podcast, the 84 episodes we've done, and each one we finished with his chances for re-election, I believe, although I'm not 100% sure, I believe this is the first time we are now over 50%. I believe now, and this is a psychological barrier that I've had to overcome, there is a, currently a 51% chance that Donald Trump is re-elected a president of the United States, and if that indeed happens... God help us all. All right. On that happy note, uh, that'll do it for this edition of the uh, podcast. We may delay Wednesday's podcast until Thursday because the final impeachment vote is scheduled for Wednesday afternoon. It always seems as if everything happens on a Wednesday, and we normally tape on Wednesdays and Sundays, although that might be changing post-impeachment. So uh, you know, stay tuned. It'll either be Wednesday or Thursday, the next episode of the Individual One Podcast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, review, and share this uh, episode via social media. Follow us on Twitter at individual number one pod. Until next time, my name is John Ziegler. You're listening to the Global Story Network.